Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 12-28-2022, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time we have this evening. We thank you that you brought us to this point in December uh, on the precipice of a new year. So we thank you for bringing Word is Truth to this point, Father. We are together, we're here, and we want to study the Word of God. So, Lord, we want to thank you for each family that is a part of Word is Truth. Um, we are in different states, but we have a fellowship that supersedes distance and walls and boundaries. So we thank you for this opportunity to be able to talk about what is important to you, Father, at this hour. So, Father, we pray for our church family and those who are sick among us. We pray for those who may still be grieving especially the Elmore family at this hour. And Father, we pray for the health of those who uh, are in pain or suffering. All I can think of is Mike, I heard, has uh, some, some things going on. You've, you know what those things are, Father. We pray for him, lifting him up before you now. Also, his church as well. And Father, we pray for... Uh, our study tonight, that what is said will be clear. At least we'll understand what your points are that you want to make to us this evening as we focus our attention now on Romans chapter 11, verse 29. So, Father, give us wisdom as we look into these things. In Christ's name, amen. So we have been studying in the book of Romans, and as you know, we are in Romans eleven twenty nine. So <clears throat> the context has been quite interesting. It's a lot of understanding about where we are, the dispensation uh, that we're in, and how to look at that. How do we understand that based on what the scriptures are telling us? So, just to pick up where we left off, I'll start reading, but I'll, I want to back up. Romans eleven twenty five. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until a full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on the account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. That's where we are, Romans eleven twenty nine. So you should have notes. In your notes, we have a small verse in front of us, but it tells us the extent of God's heart. There is a huge difference between God and us. God has a plan when he decided, uh, God had a plan when he decided to create all things. As we look directly at this verse, let's allow God to tell us what is important to him. God will accomplish his purposes, and all we can do is go along for the ride. So, it's a small verse. I broke it into two parts. The first part is for God's gifts and his call. Let's talk about some points there. From the context, God loves Israel. That's what we can tell from what we read and what we know. God loves Israel, and, and, and which means he chose them. 
He foreknew and predestined them to be part of his eternal purpose. Now, we discussed this earlier. And whenever those words are used for someone or a group or a nation, as it is in this case, that means the reason they came into existence is because God called them into existence. And not only did God call them into existence, but he knew all the ups and downs that they would go through, all the changes that would happen in their path. So God already knows Israel's failure. He's not surprised um, by what has happened as far as uh, what we have considered, oh, here's where Israel failed. He already knows about it. We learned about it, but God already knew. So when he said he predestined, he foreknew them, he predestined them, he called, that is to say, this was before time began. This is part of the eternal purpose of God that he would call Israel. So it almost is nonsense to think that Israel will somehow not fulfill what God has planned for her. It, I don't know how you could see it another way. If God foreknew them, if God predestined them, if he did all that, and he knows they're going to succeed. <coughs> Excuse me. He knows they're going to succeed. There's no question about it. Unless you think that God's plan can fail and that his omniscience and his knowledge of time you, you see that to be deficient in some way. God sees the end from the beginning, or the beginning from the end, however you want to say it. He sees it all. And so the fact that Israel is part of God's eternal purpose, well, they're going to be on the scene again. And yet, with all of that, you have theologies that do not recognize that. They see things from a linear perspective. They see man fail and they say, oh, God's got to respond. And God responds. They say, yep, God responded. And then he's, you know, that's how they see it. They don't understand the bigger picture. Whenever these words are employed, I'm saying to you, understand the bigger picture here. It is important that you don't just allow yourself to fall, to pray to just what people think in terms of whether Israel is faring and, and, and they're doing well or they're not doing well. Always know God already saw it. Point B, therefore he cannot and will not revoke their status or calling even though they are our enemies. It's imagined. And I'm just bringing in the thought of Jeremiah 31, 37, which we, we had last week, which says, this is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done. And notice, the descendants of Israel, declares the Lord. The descendants. That's perfectly uh, said to say, well, no matter what, not only is the, are we talking about the generation of Israel standing before him, but he's talking about the descendants of Israel. He won't, he saw them, he called them. So obviously he knows that they're going to succeed, just as we have been talking. And when we talk about the failure, we also should talk about the balance of it, which is, yes, they're going to succeed. Point C, gifts. So <clears throat> we're, we're looking at the verse where his gifts and his call are irrevocable. So I'm just giving you some of the Greek words for gifts here used. And it means a divine gratuity, or that is deliverance from danger. These are ways. I just should... State whenever I give you all these types of meanings, and you see a lot of different uh, ways the word can be used, just know that in Scripture the word may be used in all of these different ways. That's one way to see this. So the word has some uh, some latitude towards 
So it's not just one particular meaning. Now, some words would have that, but some Greek words can be used in different ways, and it depends on the writer and the context, how they use the word. So it's not just to say, oh, let me look at the Greek word and see what it means. It's, it's more understanding how the word is used in the Bible, the various ways the word is used in the Bible. So, okay, enough about that. So it's a divine gratuity that is deliverance from danger or passion, specifically a spiritual endowment that is subjectively religious qualification or objectively miraculous faculty. Free gift, and that comes from strong. So I gave a couple references, <clears throat> ones that you will probably know pretty well. So Romans 6.23 also has this word where it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's Romans, that's the same word, charisma, that is used for gifts. Also, it is very heavily used in Romans chapter 12, where it talks about the gifts of the Spirit that each of us have been given. You know, just like uh, everyone in the church has been given a spiritual gift. We all play a role in the body of Christ. We don't always know what that is right away, but we can discover it through spiritual growth. And there's other scriptures. I would <clears throat> definitely, uh, the, the major focus has been on divine endowment, meaning spiritual gifts or enablement that God has given, especially the First Peter 4.10 passage, which says that we ought to use our gifts to serve one another. So, so gifts, again, are the quality of a gift is that it's free. Does not, we didn't earn it and we don't deserve it. It's just this. So if it happens to be like the gift of pastor teacher, right? That is something God has blessed us with. He didn't just bless the person who has it. He blesses the congregation with the gift of pastor teacher. And the people who have in the body other gifts, same thing. He didn't just give that gift for that person. That gift was given so that that person could serve the body. So we have to look at these things differently, not from the standpoint of selfishness like the Corinthians did, and uh, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So point D <clears throat> is the word calling. So God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable, as we're getting to. So calling, the Greek is klesis, and uh, it means an invitation, figurative, figuratively, or calling. It is translated calling, and there's not much other than what it means, strictly speaking. So I gave a couple references to just to round it out so you could kind of get an idea of how it's used in the Bible in some places. So here, Ephesians 1.18, you know Ephesians 1.18, we've studied this. It says, um, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So the calling we have is obviously related to our being in Christ. We're called, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In time, we are called and we join the body of Christ. We answer the call by believing in Christ, and then we are called to this unique, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Vocation or calling or status as those who are of the new creation. So that's, a, so that's Ephesians 1.18. It talks about the hope to which he has called you. And in Ephesians 4.1, you already know uh, that we ought to walk worthy of the calling to which we have received. And, and then there's other verses, Philippians 3, 2 Timothy. Why don't I look at 2 Timothy 1.9? I won't look at look up everyone, but I just threw a few in for reference here. It says, he, saved, he has saved us and called us, there it is, to a holy life. So there's two things there, saved us, 
has to do with our salvation, obviously, and called us to a holy life. Now, a holy life doesn't mean we walk around with our noses up in the air. It means that we are separated. We have a special life that God has specifically designated us for in this particular age, called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, here, and this is another point to make. We don't get to choose what our calling is. Now, a lot of people want to do that, right? They want to get saved, and they're, especially in this age, they get saved, and they, or they think they get saved. I don't know if they're saved or not. But they're familiar with Christianity, and they look back instead of looking forward. So they want to go back to Israel, and they're just infatuated, intrigued by all the it, the characters, it, uh, Moses and Daniel and David and all the different things going on in the Old Testament, <clears throat> and they want to be an Israelite. That is their entire life dream. I remember talking to a person one time, and I won't reveal any names, not here, by the way. So, but anyway, the guy was saying to me, I said, well, he said, I said, well, what is the most important thing you're, you know, what are you studying? What is, what is most important to you right now? And he said, it is about Daniel. He said, Daniel, he, he just wants to study everything he can know about Daniel. Daniel was the focus, right? And Daniel, it's not recorded anywhere where Daniel sinned or failed. I just want to be just like Daniel, he kept saying. And I said, I just listened to him. I didn't really say <clears throat> anything, but we can't be an Israelite no matter what. That is not our call. God chose that for us. And we, we, we don't earn the fact that we're in the church. This is not something we, um, we sign up for. God chose us when he wanted us in this particular age. He, he, we always look at it like, okay, if he chose you before time began, that means he had to select you to be in this particular age when he was calling out his many sons into glory. So it, it's not our choice. We couldn't, all we did was believe in Christ. We didn't say, okay, God, I'm believing in Christ, but I want to be in, in the church age. No, it doesn't work that way. So calling uh, I like the Second Timothy one nine passage. He called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. Let's keep going. Point E: <clears throat> Israel is sleeping now, but has not lost any of the calling bestowed on this nation. And we should always know that. And I'm going to read Romans um, chapter nine verses three through five. In this regard, Paul says, For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God overall, forever praised. Amen. And this is to say, when you look at this, look at the glories bestowed upon this nation. It, there is no other nation on the face of the earth that can boast of these things. And I'm not even saying boast from the standpoint of, like, we, wow, aren't we something? I'm only saying that God is the one who ordained and called this nation. And there's no other nation. He particularly formed the nation through the patriarchs. Abraham. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. And we know the story of how it all shook out. <clears throat> so no other nation on the face of this earth can claim to be God's nation. So anyway, point F, we're keeping it moving. Israel will wake up and assume their role on earth again. However... This version of Israel will be regenerate. 
So I read uh, Romans 11, 26, and 27 for that thought, um, which says, <clears throat> And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So when I say that, Israel in the past was a mixed multitude. What do I mean? I mean, some were saved and some were not. I suspect, if you ask my opinion, that most were not saved. Most fell for the deception that the Mosaic law was the source and the ground of justification for Israel. And that was certainly false. <clears throat> I call it the big lie. Many Christians, so-called, are falling for that big lie today. They're running around trying to tell people that justification has to do with keeping laws. Keep, they may not pick the whole Mosaic law. They may just pick some pieces of it and then tell people you must be obedient to this in order to be right with God. Right with God? Justified. And if you're not justified, well, that means you're still condemned. There's only, just like a light switch, it's either on or off. Uh, when we're born, we're condemned. And the only way we're going to be justified is through faith, not through keeping the Mosaic law. So a regenerate Israel. You know what we also have? We have a regenerate church. Uh, and when I say that, I mean no one who is in the church uh, is lost. No one is in Adam that is in the church. Only those who are saved and in Christ are in the church. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who professes to be in the church is in the church. I'm, just because you profess Christ and you have in your heart a system of works where, whereby you are trying to be saved and justified, uh, I would say, you know, of course I can't claim or, or pronounce somebody saved or lost, but that is certainly not the the way to approach God by your works. It is by grace you have been saved, not from ourselves, a gift of God, not of works. So people who refuse that refuse God's way of salvation and they also refuse God's provision for salvation. So now we're, we didn't have a regenerate Israel before, but we will have one in the tribulation. This new Israel, this new and improved 2.0, or let's just say new covenant Israel, will be on the scene. And it will I'm sure it will be glorious. Point G, to note, the church is also called, chosen, foreknown, predestined, justified, and glorified. I'm getting all this from Romans 8, 29, and 30. <clears throat> also, Ephesians 4, 4 is... Uh, let me look at the Ephesians passage. We already know Romans 8, 29, and 30. But Ephesians 4, 4 just says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Yeah, one, and obviously, you know, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism. <clears throat> so in this, this is to say that we, all of these designations are given to the church. We're called, we're foreknown, we're chosen, elected, all that. <clears throat> so this is to say, <clears throat> excuse me, that God sees the church. He sees us. It is clear of who we are in the mind of God. We are not going to fail. If Certainly Israel failed, but we can see that God already knows that they are going to succeed. So those same words are said of us. We're called. We're chosen. Will God, <clears throat> will, will he re go back on his call for the church? Is, if he didn't do that for Israel, would he revoke our call? Is that possible? Well, from those first century Jews, that's what they wanted God to do. They wanted God to say, well, God, you made a mistake by calling the church. It sh we should still be under the Mosaic law. That should be our callings. Don't, don't call this new body. It is the Jews, right? We, we already covered the info in, in Acts 15 where they wanted people 
uh, who were converts to convert to Judaism. They wanted a, a Gentile to, to convert to Judaism, which would mean be circumcised and obey the Mosaic Law. What a, a, the turmoil that was the result of that thinking in the early church. It wasn't a smooth and glorious and uh, triumphant church that we talk, well, a lot of people talk about it, but it, it was a church fraught with problems and uh, trouble, you know, and people uh, creating division and hating one another in the church. This is what the early church looked like. We want to move away from that to a mature church. So and this point is just to note, hey, if, if, if God will never revoke Israel, he will never revoke anything for the church. Not at all. Let's keep going. <clears throat> we just got this last part. Um, so for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So let's talk about that. Further evidence. This is point A. Further evidence that God will never cast away Israel. For him to make this statement, it, I don't know how someone could say otherwise. How could they say that God will cast Israel away? I, I don't know. And I quote, the last half of Jeremiah 31, 37, which says, because of all they have done, declares the Lord. So it does not matter what Israel does. God called them for his special purposes. They will fulfill God's purposes. They don't have a choice in the matter. God already saw that they would succeed. So this is evidence. <clears throat> when I say evidence, look, when someone questions you, when you're out talking to your buddies or friends or, or people in the world, and you come across a particular scripture, this is one of those scriptures that you need to have in your, your gospel tool belt or your witnessing tool belt. You, this is important for you, that you understand that God will never revoke or change his mind when it comes to our calling. Now, obviously, salvation is a gift, right? When it says his gifts and his call, salvation is a gift, even though the word is a little different. The word is doron, but the same principles. God's giving you a gift. It does not depend on you. It depends on God. So we're not on the hook for our salvation. We're not responsible for it. God is. Now, the question you might ask, will God fail? The answer is absolutely not. And how do I know? Here's where you want to pull out that verse from your, your back pocket here. And this is where you want to employ it. God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. He will never cast away Israel. And this, it doesn't even matter what they have done. God will never cast them away. And when, you're, when it comes to your salvation, your call as in the church, same result. He will never. His re, he, he is resolved to see this thing through the end. And if a person would say that God would cast away Israel or cast away the church, you know what? They're, they're treading on dangerous ground because they're saying, just like first century Israel did, they're saying, God, we don't care about your eternal purpose. All we want is what we want. But like I said in the opening, God will fulfill his eternal purpose. All we can do is go along for the ride. We cannot change that. Whether with us or without us, he's going to fulfill his eternal purpose. But if he's given us gifts or called us, well, we certainly will be along for the ride, no doubt about it. So let's look at this word irrevocable. What does it mean? <clears throat> and, you know, this is an interesting word. It means without repentance, not to be repented of. So what is that saying, right? It's a strong assertion to say that God will never change his mind. 
Now this word is ametamelalasis tas. I, I, I messed the word up. But the word, the root of that word is metamelomai. And that word is the word uh, for regret, repentance, right? So <clears throat> we've seen this word before. It is not the word for repent, which is met metanoia. It is the word for feeling sorry or regret. That that's the word that's used. Now remember, Paul sent that letter in Second Corinthians chapter seven, and he was kind of like, "I sent this letter. I really shouldn't have sent it. I regret that I sent it." Well, Paul regretted it, but here you see the a in front of metamelalastos. That A means negative. So God will never, what he's saying is, I will never regret the decision I made to call you. It's interesting that that word is used here, I thought. So let's dig into it a little bit. Point C, God will never change his mind or regret the fact that he chose Israel. You know what? A lot of people would think that he did, he does regret it. He says, man, Israel failed. You know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to call the church. And they're saying that God does regret it. Interesting that many think God replaced Israel's call with the church. And that's basically what they're saying. That goes to point D. To do this, God would have to turn away from Israel and regret his choosing them. Why would he turn away from them? When he called them, he would have to say, well, I must have made a mistake when I did that because now i got to turn to the church. He didn't fulfill his purpose in Israel. Thus, he, his eternal purpose is thwarted. So he would have to regret it, choosing them. And that is God is saying to us right now, he will never do that. That is not true. So... Uh, no matter how bad Israel failed. And remember, they failed horribly. Not only did they fail throughout the years in the Old Testament, we read about it, but they failed by crucifying their Messiah, the very one who came to the nation. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So we can know, point E, God's attitude toward disobedient Israel shows his heart of love and purpose. When I say his heart of love, it says, hey, I chose them. I know what, I already know the end from the beginning. I already know what they're choosing them means. I already saw the ups and downs. I already got that. So God, by him choosing him, choosing, giving them these gifts and call, it also speaks of his eternal purpose. And, you know, we might say, well, God's eternal purpose is to bring many sons into glory. Israel is a component part of the greater purpose of God. So Israel supports that eternal purpose. Uh, and clearly, the church is God's eternal purpose. This is why God hid it within himself. He revealed it when the time was, was fully come. That's when he sent son, sent Christ, uh, born of a woman, born under the law. This is all Galatians 4.4. 4, so that we might receive the adoption to sonship. So all of that was all orchestrated by God and his eternal purpose. So that's what's important about this is to know that God sees all already in time. This is not something that's an afterthought. So uh, it also tells us there are no limits to our gifts and calling and our and his eternal purpose. So we, we kind of already know that. We, we already know that once a person's saved, they're always saved. There is, we're not saved because of anything we've done in the first place anyway. Once a person is saved, they're always saved. We should just, I mean, uh, when we speak about it, I know it creates a lot of controversy for people because what are they saying? They're saying that your salvation depends on you. 
And you can't say that you're going to always be saved because you may fail. Well, our failure cannot defeat the eternal purpose of God. It just cannot. We're going to close this thought with Romans 5 and 20. It says the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Now notice, when was the law brought in? Talking about the Mosaic Law here. So we're talking all the way back, go back to the giving of the Mosaic Law. Why did God bring the Mosaic Law on board? So that the trespass might increase. Now he's also showing this, this distinction in front of the nations. Right? So God is saying, here, I'm going to give you the standard of my righteousness so that not only you have it, but the nations around you will know that I am holy and, I, and you do not meet that holiness, that standard. So he says the law was brought in so the trespass might increase. What do you mean increase? means it will be more visible. You might not know you're a sinner. You might not realize you were born in Adam as a, and you have an inherited sinful nature. You might not see it because you are comparing yourselves with others. But when you compare yourselves with God, you will realize that you're condemned. As it says in 2 Corinthians 3, you, the law was a minister of condemnation. It was a minister of death. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So just know, was grace in the Old Testament? Absolutely. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But are we to be, once we see this increased sin, and we're very understanding of our sinfulness, what what should we do? Should we fret? Should we hit the panic button? No, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that lets us know it's the same salvation, same principle that was in the Old Testament, all the way back here with the Mosaic Law, is the same principle that we have today under grace. There it is. So we're going to pause at this point. I went over a little bit, but um, <clears throat> I'm going to pause and open the floor for some Q&A to see if, uh, what are your thoughts? The floor is open. Uh, I just have one thought. I was listening to, uh, I mean, whatever, and it was said um, that uh, the scripture said they would take away that they sin. Yes. I, I thought that when Christ was on the cross, it was just for this. Everything was settled. Yes, it is settled to a degree. Now, are you mean? Do you mean the fact that Christ died for the sins of the world? Well, we know He died for the sins of the world, but the scripture that I was hearing that um, God was God, God will. Um, with Israel, all, all their sins will, will, will be. Re I forgot the passage that you read, though. Yeah. You so, started in the about Israel, about their, their sins? Yes. Yes. Um, it, I mean, is that past or that um, present? Yeah, so what happens is <clears throat> this phrase in Romans 11, 26, and 27. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What does he mean, take away their sins, <clears throat> is the question. Because sins should not be an issue between them, correct? If Christ died on the cross. But it, it, that, that's a scripture from, from the Old Testament and the talking future. Well, that's a scripture from Romans eleven twenty seven. It says, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So the question Dave is asking is, wait a minute, didn't Christ already pay for their sins at the cross? What does it mean at this future time when when I take away their sins? Is that the question, Dave? Yes. Okay, just checking. 
And did you have a, a thought, Bill? Did you want to contribute? Okay, so is that referring to when the church is gone and Israel will become believing Israel? Yes, yes. And in fact, in fact, the verse before it says, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Um, yeah, so it's after the church age is over. <clears throat> or the scripture I should have read was, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until, uh, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So that's after the church age then. Okay, so what does it mean? Uh, anybody want to take a stab at it before I do? Okay. Well, he will. Well, he will be the God over them. Right now, he's over the church. Well, I, Dave's question is: What does it mean that when I take away their sins? Okay, let me take a stab at it. Okay, so here, here's what it means. It means that when, well, we have a couple ways to look at this. When Christ paid for the sins of the whole world, including every sin that Israel would have ever committed, that was the provision for salvation. It is not salvation. So even though Christ paid for the sins of the world, the, what we are... Uh, commanded to do is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not just, well, maybe, uh, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, it doesn't really matter if you do or don't. God is commanding us. So our obedience to that command is faith, or it calls it the obedience of faith. So once you believe in Christ, then you are reconciled. And then it says your sins are forgiven, right? So this is to say, when I take away their sins, means even though Christ made the provision, Israel rejected Christ. Israel will then receive Christ. God will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and then they will be reconciled to God. That is a phrase that is to say that they are reconciled to God now. It is not to say that God, somehow their sins were not paid for. They were paid for by Christ on the cross. But it's just that, and, and for us, you will see similar things that would say, like, um, even though uh, you, you believe, or even though Christ paid for your sins, you must believe in Christ. And when you believe in him, you are reconciled, or you've forgiven all your sins, right? When it says that, for instance, Ephesians 1, 7 is a good example of this. Ephesians 1, it says, In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. Here it is, the forgiveness of sins. Well, what do you mean the forgiveness of sins? It means forgiveness also means remission or blotting out or taking away of sins. Now, it's not to say that the sins... Um, are still standing against us because we already know that God is not counting our sins against us. But in order to be reconciled to God, you got to believe in Christ, right? That's just, that is a requirement. And when you are when you believe in Christ, you are said to be forgiven of sins. So forgiveness. Remember, we were talking about this when we went through this. Forgiveness means reconciliation. That's what it means. So the same thing is in 1 John 1, 9 is a good example, even though that's not talking about salvation. It's talking about fellowship. So it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just, notice, to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Well, you mean to tell me that weren't our sins paid for and propitiated? Yes, they were. Well, what does it mean to have forgiveness for your sins? In that context, it means restoration to fellowship. That's what will happen once you confess your sins. You'll be restored to fellowship. 
So in the same way, this means, um, this is to say, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, when their sins will be remitted. And that remission of sins means the same thing as forgiveness. It just just means reconciliation. So we looked at it another way, I think. I think I gave you another scripture. Like if, um, if you are, if you have ought against your brother and you're going to go worship God, what should you do? It says, leave your gift uh, at the altar and then go reconcile with your brother, right? And then come back, right? Because you'll have anger in your heart and you're trying to worship God. So he's saying you need to have fellowship with. Fellowship is important when it comes to worship, right? You shouldn't have revenge, motivation, hatred, all these things in your heart when you're trying to worship God. I might be, um, I might not be on 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 the same context, but I'm just using. So there's a couple thoughts. So if we already talked about it, if we talk about baptism, the word that should come to mind is identification. That's what it means. If we talk about forgiveness, what do we mean? What is the word that should come to mind? Reconciliation. Now, it doesn't always mean reconciliation in terms of salvation, which means that we're reconciled to the Father through Christ. It could be reconciliation to fellowship. We're restored to fellowship. Right? So it's a good, it's a good way to understand what does it mean, forgiveness. The word that should pop into your head should be reconciliation. Now you just have to look at the context and determine what what is the subject. I'll pause. Dave, does that answer or do you have a follow-up question? Um, I have a follow-up. So that be the unbelieving um, Jews or the unbeliever is not reconciled. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. If you're an unbeliever, as a Jew or a Gentile, you're not reconciled to the Father. The only ground of reconciliation is through Christ, through the Son, through the work of Christ on our behalf. So if you believe in Christ, Christ is the mediator between God and man. He brings that reconciliation. Even in 2 Corinthians, uh, it says that we are in we're ministers of reconciliation. We have that role to help people understand what the gospel is and so that they so that they could be reconciled to God. Um, so yeah, if all unbelievers, whether they're Jew or Gentile, are not reconciled. But I guess in context here, that's what we're talking about, Jews here. Yeah, currently, there are Jews who are not reconciled to the Father. Uh, although... Paul and plenty other Jews were. So uh, there's, it, it's really on an individual basis Jews are reconciled. But as a nation, the nation Israel is not reconciled to the Father. And they won't be until the church is raptured, church is taken off the scene. I'll pause. Other thoughts? Well, that's a good question, Dave. I just thanks for for the opportunity to talk about it because that question throws people off because of the words. They look at the words and they say, "Oh, I thought we were this and all." Yeah, yeah. And I want people to. I want to ha- have the opportunity so that people can see how that word is used in the scriptures, and there are some keys to understanding. I wouldn't say. Uh, a person who just says, oh, forgiveness or, you know, all that will we'll understand what it means. So this is why it's opportunity. So, so thanks for giving me that opportunity. Other thoughts about well, that? Well, thanks for answering, because uh, my mom was going to Second Corinthians chapter 5, where you were saying a statement, you know, about, the, you know, like, the, the um, Jews, though. Yeah, so... And how the we are reconciled and we are ambassadors to Christ, and how God the Father is not counting our sins against us. Right. 
So people who are reconciled are said to be forgiven of their sins. Their sins are remitted. So, so it's interesting when we think about sins, we already say sins are not the issue. So God already made provision. So when you believe in Christ, Christ doesn't have to come from heaven and die on the cross again. It's done. When you believe in Christ, then you receive the benefits of salvation. Right? Is, there's no work that has to be done. Like it says in Hebrews, he offered himself once for sin, for all. And that's it. He doesn't have to keep on offering himself like the priests in the Jewish uh, Old Testament uh, scenario. It, one time, he, this, he stood up one time, he offered himself, and that was it. So how God reconciles us through the work of Christ is through our believing in Christ. So I'll pause. Other thoughts out there? Does this sound... Evening, uh, yeah. Go ahead, Fred. Yeah. I was you just going to say, I hope this doesn't sound confusing, but um, but I'm going to... I'm hoping every if there are other questions about this, please ask. Fred, go right ahead. Well, on the same vein, you are uh, kind of the same vein. You mentioned the term sons of God, which in Romans chapter 8, I believe it's 18, 19, the, the Bible refers to uh, church-age believers as sons of God, given, in other words, all that uh, was ac accomplished because of Christ. You also used the term for the Jewish age and Jewish believers, uh, not you, but the scriptures use the term, and you read it somewhere. Uh, forgive me, I'm not, I don't have my in front of me. Mm -hmm. And you used the word son of God. I want to know how they... What's the difference? Is a Jewish son of God the same as a church age believer son of God? Yeah, so <clears throat> the reason, now there may be some, I think it's a, the difference is between maybe in our, in the New Testament, there may be some places where it says sons of God or, um, let's see where we can find it. Yeah, so we have in Romans 8, 15, well, here's a good example. 8.14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So notice, children of God there. But then 15 says, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption, notice, to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And so... Then in Romans 8, 17, it goes back to children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God. So there's just two ways of saying it. We're either children of God or heirs of God or sons of God. It all means the same thing. It doesn't matter in terms of uh, whether we're Jewish or Gentile to start with. Because in this scenario, once we believe in Christ, we are... Uh, we are a new creation. We're sons. We could be children. These are just titles. And there are different words in Greek, too. It's not like it's the same word. I think the verse that I gave you was Galatians 4.4. 4. I don't know if that's the one I quoted, which talks about, but when the time, set time had fully come, God sent a son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. That's Galatians 4, 4, and 5. So, and 6. What, which, I'm not quite sure what you were saying about sons or the difference between sons now and sons before. Is that sons under well, the Old I thought, Testament? I thought, I, I thought the scriptures, you, you read a passage and uh, forgive me, I don't, I just heard sons of God in that passage, and it referred to the Jewish age. And so my question is, what, you know, what is the difference between a Jewish age believer 
and son of God, or the church age believer, son of God. Okay, so if I look in the Old Testament and I type in, if I were to do sons of God, right? That term is more a reference to, there's two times that word is used. And at least, I'm, at least in the NIV, it's Genesis 6, 2. Remember, the sons of God saw the daughters of humans were beautiful, right? And then it talks about them, the Nephilim, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans. So the, now if I were to use the King James, it would bring up more references to sons of God. It would. So here, here's a good example. I know angels. Obviously, you know that angels are referenced there, right? This is not Israel. If I were to use sons of God, <clears throat> in Job 1.6, there's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Or Job 2.1, right? The sons of God came again. When the morning stars, or Job 38.7, when the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Um, so all of those are references in the Old Testament to sons of God. Now, I just looked at King James Version, and I just looked at uh, the NIV. But that's it when it comes to Old Testament. Now, you might find that Israel is a son, son a, a reference to son. <clears throat> and that is referring to Israel. Israel, even though they're individual Jews, the sonship of Israel or the adoption is a reference to the nation of Israel. So the Jews individually form the nation. The nation is God's eternal purpose to bring uh, Christ on board, to be, you know, the evangelist for the world. That is their role. So, so it has a different meaning. But in the New Testament now, when we get to the New Testament, Sons of God or children of God have a different meaning altogether. Now, we saw children of Israel. That's something we could reference. But it has a different meaning because of the work of God, the Holy Spirit, on our behalf. For instance, when we were baptized by the Spirit, that was, this is the initiation, you could say, for everyone who is in the church. You must be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And this, this, what this does for us is it takes us out of Adam. Now, who's in Adam? Israel, believe it or not, is in Adam. We, we would like to think, people like to think, well, Israel is in Christ. They are not. Israel is in Adam, and they are part of this world. Only the church is in Christ. And, and only the church have that distinction of not of the world and all the things that we, we're sons. And the reason why we're sons, because we are identified with the person of Christ. So the word son, when it's used of us, is a reference to the Father's eternal purpose. So that's the special term that Christ received when he executed the Father's purpose and then he turned, and now God is going to call many sons into glory through him. He's the original son. We are the, we are the adopted sons. We're going to be also uh, adopted into the same wealth and power that he has. So son, son is a key catch phrase. And I know it's used so cavalierly in and people just use it, to, it just rolls off the tongue without the meaning. But the key to this understanding is, is that uh, it, it is a unique designation that God has uh, for us in this particular age, this mystery age where we're identified with Christ. What's true of him? If he's a son, then we are sons. If, if his destiny is, is all things, our destiny is to inherit all things. Uh, all of, anything that is true of Christ because of the baptism of the Spirit is also true of us. The Son represents Roman-style adoption. We say it's the greatest transfer of wealth and power. And who's it coming from? It's coming from the Father. So what is that? It is the Father's 
purpose to bring these many sons into glory, to have children. That's what it is. So, so if, if that is the Father's eternal purpose, to have sons, have children, and he's using these terms like son, like, all, like Christ says, all things that, are, that, that the Father has belong to me. And then he says, and that is why I'm telling you. Why? Because they belong to you too. Because of your relationship with me. This is all in John 16, 15. So the, the, the objective is the fact that when we say, when we say son, when, when Christ is the son, the unique son, this is to say that there is no, he is the one who is the, uh, the grantee. He has received everything from the Father. It has been placed in the Son. And that includes the entire Father's plan, which he hid from all the world and from angels. But it includes all, all of the things that he had, he invested in his Son. That's why it says, since we are sons, in Romans eight seventeen, then we are also heirs. Paul is using this logic to say, Hey, we're not only are we children, but we are children, we're also heirs of God. So Christ is an heir of God from the standpoint of his sonship where he received everything from the Father. And he's also saying, hey, by the way, you're an heir of God by virtue of your relationship with Christ. So having being a son is distinctive of the Father's eternal purpose. And so that never happened. Remember what happened in the Old Testament. This was hidden from the Old Testament. This is part of the new age, the new understanding that we have. So it does not relate at all to Israel's purpose. Another way to look at it is to say Israel has a different purpose than the church has. So even if Israel is talked about as a son, which I didn't find son of God uh, in scripture. It was referring to angels. But even if we were to see the nation as a, the adoption, right? Because you're going to see that the word adoption is used for Israel. But it's referring to the fact that Israel is God's nation. right? And God has invested Israel with all of the wealth and power that he has for them to do what it is they need to do uh, in the world and who they need to be. I'm going to pause. I'm looking at the time. My goodness, Fred. Uh, let's, um, do you have any follow-ups? No, uh, you, I don't know where I saw the reference uh, the Son of God to Israel, and I, I did the word search as you were doing it, so I must have been mistaken about the words, but you certainly went over the distinctions uh, right all the way from Genesis, right on through to all of them. Uh, that was a good answer. Oh well, so. I'm glad. I mean, but there could be there could be some more references that uh, we are not aware of. And but you know what? Remember wh who we are, and a big part of it is sonship, is a part of the mystery. In fact, it's almost like we're not even here because we're not part of human history. If we were to just look at human history, God's going to call out. He's going to stop time call out these many sons and then what is he going to do he's going to he's going to close out the church and then start time again it's almost like the church god's eternal purpose is missing from the same. well it's missing from the old testament right it's not in there and sure enough but it's going to is the whole world it's not going to be erased from time it is going to be god's magnum opus for all eternity because it is his eternal purpose and it can never be hidden again so we're going to have to close and uh, i certainly wish we had more time and you know what we're we're deciding what we're going to do with sunday we'll talk about it which is new year's day we will communicate although i will just say on on record dwight has created a facebook group uh, it's called Word is Truth Christian Church. So we invite or we ask uh, everybody to join 
this Facebook group. We would love, this is going to be a private group where we can chat on Facebook about whatever we want. Uh, and it's private. But we can also invite anybody and everybody we want to this group. People may just see this group and decide to join. So uh, I'm asking all, all of you to um, join Word is Truth Christian Church on Facebook. It is now available. Um, so we're going to have to call it at this point in time. I appreciate this is if we do get together. If I don't, we don't get together. I want to say Happy New Year to everyone. And prayer. my prayer for everyone is that we would have that distinct focus where we are focused. Our attention is, is, is right there where we left off in John 17. And also, uh, yeah, yeah, John 17, where we've been talk, talking about Christ's prayer, and also Romans 11, where we are, that we would get right back on in 2023 and continue where we have been uh, treading all this time. And, and I think that is a positive place for us to continue our spiritual journey. So we're going to have to close, but we'll talk much more about this, not only uh, in the times, our meetings to come, but in the new year. So let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity as we have come to the last time we will meet in Romans uh, until next year. And it's been great, some of the things we've covered and glorious themes in the book of Romans. We pray that you will continue to open our eyes, enlighten us, give us wisdom as we approach the scriptures so that we can know you better. So Father, we pray for our word is truth. We pray for the church family, every person associated with, with us here, our, our families, our children, our extended families. We ask him for prayer, um, Perhaps you can use us to witness your word as, as we're in this world, uh, that we want to be ambassadors for Christ. It is our goal. So we thank you, Father, for this, the, the wisdom that you have blessed us with. We pray that we will know how to answer every man, how to, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. We thank you for... Uh, our sojourn in this world, our calling. And Father, this world is fraught with trouble and turmoil and upheaval. Father, we pray for safety as we go here and about in this world. And we pray that each person, Father, you will bring them to the new year and that you will continue to give us the strength to, uh, to witness Christ and to lift up his name in this world. So we thank you, Father, and we pray that you would challenge each person in this new year to continue that focus that we've had all year. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.